Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Invisible War. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 17 to 21, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Security of the Believer. The four gospel accounts tell us something of the methodology that Jesus used while he was training his disciples. In Luke 9, verses 1 to 2, we read, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, this, to use modern terms, is a short-term missions assignment. It is meant at first a preparation for their ultimate task when, you know, after the resurrection, they're going to go into all the world and make disciples of men and women from every nation. But this is still a ways away, and the disciples are not yet ready for that. But at this moment, they are to understand how much authority Jesus has entrusted to them. They've been given the power to heal the sick in Jesus' name and also to cast out demons. Now look, as the New Testament progresses, it's going to become apparent that the apostles will play a unique role in the church, and it also becomes apparent that they have a unique authority, authority that appears to be theirs alone. And so we've got to ask, to what extent should we assume that the wider church of Jesus has the same authority over demons as that which is recorded in Luke 9? Well, in order to answer that, let's go forward in Luke's gospel to the next chapter, Luke 10. Let's read verses 1 to 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What we see here is that Jesus is expanding the ministry beyond the twelve, and it now involves 72. They are, in effect, his advance guard, preparing every town and village for his coming and his ministry. And according to what follows, these 72, just just like the 12, are given authority to heal the sick. And furthermore, they are promised that the harvest is plentiful. That is, they are to expect a rich return on their ministry. See, the towns around Galilee are ready for the ministry of Jesus. They are ready to respond to the kingdom. And so the 72 go out, and by the time they return on their ministry, well, they're utterly elated. We might say they're pumped. And what is most surprising to them is the fact that the demons are subject to the name of Christ. Now, I have made mention of the fact that, you know, before Jesus, there were Jewish exorcists. But from all the material I've seen on that matter, it appears to me that they are, to the most part, charlatans who used cheap parlor tricks to try to give the impression that they could control demons. I think they couldn't. And then along came Jesus, and for the first time, we see him literally driving demons out of the land. The kingdom of God was at hand, and the 72 are now amazed that they could also cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus responds. Verse 18 says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So what does that mean? Well, undoubtedly, Jesus was saying that while you were expelling the demons, and of course the demons are subordinates of Satan, well, I saw their master fall. But on a practical note, what does that mean? Well, we might here think of Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? 
then indeed he may plunder his house. See, I think Jesus was telling the 72 that they were plundering Satan's house. As they healed the sick and as they preached the good news of the kingdom and as people responded with joy, even as Jesus has predicted they would, well, Satan is losing his captives. He's finding his house raided. Imagine a rich man's house filled with very precious items. It's got, you know, jewels and paintings and rare artifacts, and it's got a safe in it, which is, you know, filled with millions and millions of cash. Well, things combined are worth even a billion dollars. In order to protect that kind of a house, well, the owner has to have a very expensive electronic monitoring system, along with other state-of-the-art security systems. He's got all the best security in the world. But now imagine that his house is attacked with overwhelming force. His guards are overwhelmed. His security is hacked. His defensive systems are all penetrated. He's rendered helpless. Now the thieves are dragging his expensive goods out the door into a waiting van. He's being plundered, and he falls from his position. And that, says Jesus, is what is happening to Satan. Jesus has come to build his church right in the heart of the satanic kingdoms of this world, and the gates of hell could not prevent his kingdom from plundering Satan of his riches. I love what Hendrickson says about this passage. He says, in all probability, the master's exalted language was not only a reference to this one event, namely the success of the 72, but rather to all similar events that would take place afterward. This is symptomatic of ever so many other victories over Satan throughout the course of this new dispensation, accomplished through the work of thousands of missionaries. And that, I think, is the proper explanation of what's happening. Not only would Satan lose his ability to slander Jesus' people before the throne, he would also lose his ability to keep his house or his kingdom free from being plundered. If it is true, as John reminds us, that the whole world is in the power of the evil one, and yet, here we see it, the evil one does not have a secure kingdom. Raiders are continually plundering him. And with that, Jesus adds another statement, and here I'm reading Luke 10, verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, how should we understand that sentence? It seems clear to me that Jesus is using a metaphor. He's not speaking literally. I know, you know, you go to Acts 28, verse 3, and you have the incident where Paul had a venomous snake bite him, and he didn't die. Indeed, he felt no effect. But listen, he didn't deliberately pick up that snake, and he didn't deliberately step on it either. And so it seems to me that the serpents and snakes that Jesus is speaking about here in Luke 10 Well, they're not literal serpents and snakes, but rather they are, as he says, the power of the enemy. They're the demons. I think that comports well to what the rest of the New Testament teaches. You know, for instance, in Romans 16, verse 20, Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, look, here we must understand exactly what's being said and what's not being said. You know, when Jesus said nothing will hurt you, he's not saying that Christians would be free from the reprisals of demons. I think, for instance, of Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum, and they're recorded in Revelation 2.13. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Boy, I hope you heard that. Antipas was no doubt a faithful witness of Jesus, 
And no doubt also, he was a man who was martyred in the place where Jesus said, where Satan has his throne. And that tells us that the persecution that resulted in the death of this man was caused by demons. If then we take Jesus' promise that the enemy can't hurt us as a promise that we won't suffer persecution and even death, I think we misunderstand. Please remember that the second chapter after the one we're studying, that is, if we go ahead from Luke 10 all the way to Luke 12, verse 4, Jesus will say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more they can do. In effect, here's what Jesus is saying. There are those who still have been given the power to kill the bodies of my followers. And God has not promised that in these days of a great invisible war that his servants would not suffer death. See, we must remember that he had promised that he would send his disciples out into the world as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's an interesting image. And here's the truth behind it. Persecution always follows where God's people are reaching and winning the lost. Now look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you read through that, he speaks of the things that have occurred because of his ministry. Imprisonment, beatings, 40 lashes minus one, which by the way was a very cruel punishment. Then Paul also speaks of the constant danger he's in. And then he speaks of hunger, and then of thirst, and then the psychological pressure that he constantly labored under. I mean, that was all the physical toll that he was bearing. And it was surely the demonic backlash that came as Paul was raiding the kingdom of Satan. And on a personal note, you know, I've noticed that for the many years of my ministry that whenever I've led someone to faith in Christ, it's almost the very same week shortly afterwards that I feel I'm subject to severe criticism in another area, and I've seen it so often that I've come to take it for granted. It is a demonic backlash. Satan does not want his kingdom raided, and so he strikes back as hard as possible. On November 14th, Dr. Neufeld will begin a new series that you won't want to miss, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. It's a 20-message series on Matthew 21 to 25. There's a lot to unpack in these five chapters, and Dr. John's biblical expertise will shed light on these passages to help you understand them in a new and deeper way. This series begins with an overview of the qualities that are unique about the Gospel of Matthew and continues with a deep dive into the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life where he will fulfill the mission he'd been sent by the Father to accomplish. So mark your calendars for November 14th and check out this series on your local radio station, your preferred podcast platform, or at backtothebible.ca. And for more information, just call us at one 800 663 If when Jesus promised that in our warfare with the demonic that nothing would be able to hurt us, we need to ask what exactly was he referring to? I noticed that within the actual text that is in Jesus' response to the 72, he doesn't explain himself. But I think it is safe to go to the rest of the New Testament and see how that promise plays out. 
So let's start with John 10, verse 28, and it's a promise of Jesus. He's speaking to his own, the ones who believe in his name, and he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, please notice that in that passage, Jesus compares perishing to someone being snatched from him. Perishing means being assigned to the judgment. And in essence, Jesus is saying that his followers are going to raid Satan's kingdom, but that Satan's demons will not be able to raid Jesus' kingdom. Satan will not build his kingdom and the gates of heaven would not be able to resist him. No, no, it's the other way around. It doesn't go both ways. Let me give another example. And this one comes from Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the angels who might separate us from our Lord are surely not the faithful angels. These are the fallen angels. These are also the rulers that Paul speaks about in this passage. That is to say, the authority structures that wage war against the kingdom of God will not be able to take us from Christ's hand. No discouragement, no temptation, no persecution, nothing. We are always with our Savior. Those of you who have never heard me speak about this theme in the past, that is, the theme of the security of the believer, well, you might be surprised by what I'm about to say. After all, we all know people who have deserted the faith. And furthermore, if you think about it, the Bible is filled with warnings about this very sort of thing. You might think of Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so it would seem it's possible to drift from the teaching we've heard. Or you might think of Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or you might think of someone whom you've known or who once seemed to be in Christ and yet they've drifted away and now shows absolutely no interest in the things of the gospel. And I can tell you personally, I once had a friend who left his wife and children for another woman. He walked away from his church and his God, and he simply disappeared from the faith. And it's now been well over 20 years, and up to this date, he shows no remorse. And as far as I can tell, he shows absolutely no interest in the things of God. You know, sometimes when we hear things of that nature, or we think it appears as if Satan has indeed won a great victory, and he is raiding Christ's kingdom. Now here, as in most cases like this, especially where the answer is unclear, it becomes necessary to consider what all of Scripture say about these matters and then, in the light of the full counsel of God, seek to understand the phenomenon of those who drift away. Now, we do notice that even in New Testament times, people deserted the gospel. Listen to 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That is to say, when the mission of reaching men and women in Satan's kingdom got hard, Demas made a decision. He would rather have what this world has to offer than carry on in the sufferings and the tribulation of the cross. He was done. He left. So we might ask, in the case of Demas, did the demons win and get him out of Christ's kingdom? Well, we have more verses to consider because John tells of a very similar phenomenon in his ministry. So let's start with 1 John 2.15. Here's John's great concern as he commands Christians. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is, you'll have to come to terms with your own affections. What is it that you supremely love? What you supremely love will tell you whether or not the love of the Father is in you. If following Jesus becomes difficult and you have options, the option to take the easy way, the option of the world's many pleasures, where do you find your heart leading you? Look, it's not a question of demonic influence, but rather it's a question of your own heart and your own affections, what you love, the things that excite your soul. Now, having made that point, let's follow John to something he then adds only four verses later. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That is to say, John declares that when these individuals deserted the faith, it was at that moment that it became plain that they had never been a part of God's people in the first place. In short, John says, there was always something amiss. There was always a love of darkness, always a heart that needed to be converted but never was. At long last, it became plain. It became plain when they left the faith. And that must mean, therefore, that the warnings against falling away, those warnings are only effective in those people whose hearts, whose inner loves are transformed by Christ. I know it's true in Scripture, and I also know it's true by what we see. See, I have a memory that comes to me from a very early part of my pastoral ministry. A man in my church was leaving his wife. She had had a double mastectomy, and he frankly told me that he was not interested in a woman without breasts. He was moving in with his secretary. I did what I could. I warned that if he should deliberately keep on sinning, yet from Hebrews 10, that there would remain no sacrifice for sins, but only a raging expectation of judgment. And then he became quite honest with me. He said, nothing scares me more than the consequences of my sin. I fear, he said, in what you say may well happen to me. But in here, he looked directly into my eyes and he said, and yet I want sex with my secretary. And he went away abandoning his faith for as was the case of Demas before him, He loved this world and not the things of God. Don't you see, warning a person like that doesn't work when his heart is not directed and warmed by the desire to know Christ, power of resurrection, the unending desire to share both in his sufferings and in his future glory. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians 1 verse 4 when he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. Now then, What has all that got to do with the reality of spiritual warfare and our battle with the forces of the evil one? Well, I know this. When Jesus promised us that the evil one would not be able to harm us, he meant that those who are truly his will never be snatched from his hand. Satan can't raid Christ's kingdom. Yeah, there are hangers-on that look like they belong to Christ's kingdom, but in their hearts, there remains a deep love of darkness. But for those of us who are born again, who have received the Spirit of God, who know the truth of an eternal calling from God, we remain Christ's. And so as the 72 return back, having inflicted damage on Satan's kingdom, Christ frankly tells them, Satan suffered a stunning loss at your hands. But then don't be concerned, for he can't hurt you. You can drag men and women from his kingdom, but he can't drag men and women from my kingdom. Now, having said that, we come to Luke 10, verse 20. 
Remember, Jesus is still addressing the joy of the 72 who have seen Satan wounded through their ministry. Verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Look, we do rejoice in both the security of the believer and in the authority that God has given every single believer in Christ. But if you think about it for a moment, the warfare that we as believers are engaged in right now with the demonic host is not what drives us forward. Our love is not some form of triumph over darkness. Our love is our great love of the light, the light which is in God. And on a very practical level, that must mean that we as Christians are never Satan-focused or demon-focused. You know, I, for one, have no interest in joining with those who spend their lifetime cursing the devil. But I have great interest in the lives of those who faithfully witness to Christ and spend all of their energy blessing Jesus. May this be what is said about all of our lives. Yep, we're involved in spiritual warfare, and yet we do acknowledge the reality of the warfare in which we are engaged. But for us, the great goal of life is that we should be found to be in Christ. May this be the legacy which we leave behind. John, thanks for your message. You know, there's a passage that I want to share with you, and you know it well, but I think it's really interesting. It has a lot to do with what what you were talking about today, and it's Matthew 16, uh, verse 18. It says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And for some reason, I think as Christians, sometimes we get that passage twisted up. You know, this is what we're talking about. This is exactly the issue, Ben, that we have this feeling that the evil one is relentlessly attacking us, dragging our children away, dragging our loved ones away. And, uh, you know, how do we stop him? I mean, let's get the, let's build up the fortress even stronger. Uh, rather than it's, it's completely the other way around. We are attacking Satan's kingdom and we are dragging his converts away. Um, so we need to continue to say that. Um, and um, I wanna continue to impress people on this. Please don't be fearful. Please be rejoicing in Christ's authority. Uh, Please continue to raid Satan's kingdom and show non-believers and other ones that Christ loves them and has died for them. And so let's continue to win people to Jesus. What a great word. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions, around the dinner table, or at night with the kids, perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full-color, fun, and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.thepowerhouse.ca. 